Welcome to the Lorax. This is a podcast where we take everyone's, well not everyone's, but most people's favourite sci-fi, fantasy and fictional universes and look at them through a historical, sociological, political and philosophical lens. Uh, Take two. (laughs) No, that's fine. Um... Uh, my name is Alex, and I'm joined by my good friend... Hi, I'm Khalil, or King Kong. Uh, we will figure out a better way to introduce ourselves as we go. <laughs> yeah, I might have to pick one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Probably. Um, but this is uh, episode 8. We're nearly at number 10, the big number of podcasts. If you get past podcast 10, then you officially can keep it going forever. The magic threshold. Nearly there. Uh, but this is uh, a podcast about a show and a world that both Kinko and I are uh, big fans of. I think I, I came into watching this quite late. Uh, I started watching it uh, probably only three or four years ago. And I think, Kinko, you watched it as a kid, did you? Or Not as a kid kid but a, a bit earlier than you um mm. so i caught the odd episode of uh, the first series while it was on tv but i never really got into it and it was only um in my early 20s um so about 10 years ago that i really got into it right what is this mystery show you're thinking well it is well, if you in- haven't read the title of the episode <laughs> <laughs> what is this mystery show person who blindly pressed play on a, on a podcast uh, it is in fact avatar the last airbender uh, that's what the show is about basically asking the question um does a show ostensibly for children have any right being this good um <laughs> but first a little introduction to avatar uh the show was created by uh michael dante dimartino and brian konietzko for uh nickelodeon when nickelodeon was on cable tv uh, the animation was uh, produced and uh, done by South Korean Studios, JM Animation, DR Movie, and MOI Animation. And according to Konietzko, the series was originally conceived in early 2001 when he took uh, an old sketch of a balding, in his words, balding middle-aged, uh, middle-aged man and imagined uh, that man as a child, still bald. And then, as everyone does when they're an artist, I guess, or a conceptual artist, he drew the character herding bison in the sky and then showed that sketch to his friend Di Martino, who was uh, watching a documentary about explorers trapped at the South Pole. Uh, Two weeks later, uh, the co-creators pitched the idea to Nickelodeon vice president and executive producer Eric Coleman, who had been looking for a show to capitalise on the success of Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter at the time. The show, uh, which ran from 2005 to 2008 across three seasons, also called Books, uh, had 61 episodes and in general has pretty much universal critical acclaim. It's one of the few shows with a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. It's a big uh, part of a lot of people, a lot of millennials, I'd say, like early li- early lives when they're kids, a show a lot of people watched. I didn't because <clears> I didn't have cable. But... Um, and it's a, I, I guess it's something that a lot of people cherish in their hearts as a show they watched when they were younger. Yeah, and uh, as you said, it's it's a film, it's a show that was on Nickelodeon, so you know a cartoon channel aimed at children. But like a lot of the best content that is made with that audience in mind, it also has a lot more to say than just a kind of superficial keep you entertained, keep looking at this bright, shiny mm-hmm. screen. Yeah, and I think one part of the thing that makes it such a special show is how realized and fleshed out the setting in the world is mm-hmm. and that setting is a fictional world where the people are divided into four distinct 
nations or civilizations, each based on and with an attunement for uh, one of the four traditional elements. So water, earth, fire, and air. And these are kind of inspired by and roughly coded to various East and South Asian cultures and other global influences as well, as we'll get into. And certain individuals in each of these societies are born with the ability to control and attune with these elements through somewhat kind of magical martial arts. And this is called bending. Um, and so not everyone can do it, but even the people who can't bend, um, and you're going to have to get used to the term bender in a non-problematic sense. Yeah, in this if you're episode. from the UK, this is uh, it might be yeah. you might be sniggering, and we'll 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 forgive you for the first few times. Um, and even the people who who can't bend these elements within those societies still ascribe to some of the characteristics and ethos of those elements. And there are other kind of offshoot specialisms of bending, like blood bending and lightning. Um, but we're going to focus in this intro on the four kind of major overarching ones. Mm -hmm. So first of all, you have the the water tribes. And there are two of these, at the North and South Poles. And so they use water bending to manipulate water and ice. The Earth Kingdom is a large terrestrial landmass uh, with kind of diverse landscape and ecology, and they employ earthbending to control ground, rock, and obviously earth. The Fire Nation is a militaristic island nation uh, to the to the west of the, the Earth Kingdom, and they're volcanic islands. And the people there use firebending for power, militaristic advancement, and industry. And then finally, the air nomads are a, a peaceful, spiritual, somewhat isolationist people who live in four mountain temples to the north, south, east, and west. And they use airbending to control the, the air around them. They can use it to glide and fly. Um, but we'll get into the actual the bending and how that manifests in a bit. But the titular avatar... Um, from the from the title of the show is an individual that is born once every generation um, and it cycles through each of the four civilizations um, but this is a, an individual that can control all four elements and they are kind of a bridge between the material and the spiritual world and they are also a balancing uh, uniting force between these four disparate nations and philosophies and they're meant to maintain balance and peace in the world so as alex said there are three entire series of this show so we're not going to do a detailed play-by-play -play of the plot but we're going to rattle through it to give you a bit of a basis so that when we talk about the themes you'll be able to understand what we're talking about if you hadn't seen the show yeah there are 61 episodes so there's no way we're going to be able to go through all of them okay so deep breath <gasps> when we join the story Aang, the current avatar, emerges from an iceberg after a hundred years of being frozen in isolation, following the near-total annihilation of the Air Nomads by the Fire Nation in an effort to prevent the avatar from getting in the way of the Fire Nation's plans for global conquest. Along with his new friends from the Water Tribe, a sister and brother called Katara and Sokka, Aang embarks on a quest 
to first master waterbending to add to his airbending. Zuko, a banished prince of the Fire Nation, is in pursuit of the Avatar to redeem himself and regain his honour in the eyes of his father and his nation. Aang discovers the Fire Nation's oppressive rule over the Earth Kingdom during their journey, and the group encounters various challenges and villains in their efforts to avoid Zuko and continue Aang's training. Aang's identity as the Avatar is revealed to the world, leading to increased danger and scrutiny from the Fire Nation. The climax of this first book unfolds during the Siege of the North, which is a battle between the Water Tribe and the Fire Nation, as the Fire Nation tried to expunge one of the two remaining Water Tribes. Aang enters what's called the Avatar State, a powerful uh, mode of enhanced bending to defend the Water Tribe. And book one ends with Aang accepting his responsibility as the Avatar and making a difficult decision to save the world from the Fire Nation's invasion despite his own inclination to non-violence. The season ends on a hopeful note, with the group determined to continue their quest and bring balance to the world by completing Aang's Avatar journey and defeating the Fire Lord. So then we move on to Book 2, Earth. In Book 2, Aang and his friends journey to the Earth Kingdom to learn earthbending. By hook or by crook, they encounter Toph Beifong, a skilled earthbender, wrestler, and I guess eight-year-old child, is she? Yeah, and blind. And blind, yeah. And arguably one of the best characters in the show. Throughout their journey, the group faces internal conflicts and end up confronting Azula, Zuko's sister, who remains a dangerous adversary throughout the show. Aang visits the mystic mystical ancient city of Amashu and seeks guidance from Avatar Roku's spirit. He also begins to experience visions from his past lives, which provide him wisdom and guidance as the Avatar. As the Earth King's palace falls under Fire Nation control, it leads to a plot to expose a conspiracy and uncover true loyalties. Meanwhile, Zuko faces an internal struggle, as he must choose between his loyalty to his uncle Iroh, also arguably one of the best characters in the show, and his desire to regain his father's approval. Book 2 climaxes in a fierce battle during an eclipse, which has profound consequences for the group and their quest to stop the Fire Nation's ongoing dominance. So, book one, Aang has been perfecting his waterbending. Book two, he's been learning his earthbending. Now he has to learn his firebending. In book three, Aang and his friends are hunting Fire Lord Ozai, the leader of the Fire Nation, to try and end the war. But Aang also needs to learn firebending because that was one of the things that really made him vulnerable uh, during during his last fights with the Fire Lord. Um, Zuko is undergoing an intense internal transformation um, and actually ends up joining the group, um, trying to make amends for his past actions and to help restore balance to the world by teaching Aang firebending. Aang, in, in his turn, faces the moral dilemma of taking a life um, because to end the war... He's going to need to kill Fire Lord Ozai. But he was raised to not kill, not take life. Um, he's even a vegetarian. He seeks guidance from his past Avatar selves, and they give him some uh, prompts and thoughtful advice that help him along that route of difficult decision-making. Um, the group is also being hunted by Azula, Zuko's sister, and her two best friends, who are also quite fun and interesting characters in their own way. And also formidable enemies. Ang and Katara's relationship deepens. Um, they enter a kind of slightly romantic uh, aspect of their friendship. 
um, amidst all the kind of chaos and tumult of war. Their hunt for the Fire Lord and their desire to stop the war is explicitly on a clock because they discovered in the library in the last season that a comet is coming which will strengthen the firebenders' abilities to such an extent that they'll be unstoppable and they will wipe out all opposition in a literal scorched earth approach. So as the day of the comet approaches, the, the urgency increases and so does the tension within the team. Ang confronts Ozai in an epic duel, a final confrontation for the fate of the world, trying to stop him using the comet's power to wipe out the Earth Kingdom, which is revealed to be his explicit genocidal aim. Zuko has his own apotheosis as he faces his sister Azula in an intense duel for the throne and control of the Fire Nation in both a uh, leadership and also a moral direction aspect. The entire story culminates with Aang's decision, his ultimate choice at how he deals with the Fire Lord and the resolution of the, the overall war and what that means for the rest of the world. And to avoid being too spoilery, we'll leave that for you to watch it. Yeah. And as when we uh, talked about, I think, last episode with Cast in the Sky, watch it. We, that that was so fast. So such <laughs> little detail was provided. That was, but that was the most we could provide. Yeah, that's like fully thirty hours of uh, story distilled yeah. into a, a, what we're trying to make a balance between giving you enough context to understand these discussions, but also not trying to ruin um, an incredible bit of storytelling. Yeah, yeah. With the plot uh, flown through, it's time to talk about uh, the inspirations for the show. Uh, and what the creators used to uh, imagine and pull together this amazing setting and story. And probably the first thing we should, we should tackle, from a central, a central part of the show, but also quite you know important to us both as martial artists, both Kinko and I are uh, martial artists, we enjoy practicing and inspiring and all kinds, everything that comes with it. That's how we met. That's how we met, yeah. And that bending in the show is heavy, almost entirely, totally inspired by martial arts. So, should we go through them? Yeah, okay. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll take, um, I'll take airbending and waterbending, and you can do earth, fire, and blood. Uh, so, to start with airbending, arguably the most important of the of, in this show in particular, because of Aang's, it's Aang's central um, form of bending, employs a lot of circular movements and evasion. It's very fast, it's very agile. Um, it's almost an entirely defensive form of bending, and, and it also employs um, a lot of defensive martial arts techniques and apparently um, according to my research anyway it's inspired by the Chinese martial art and I'm going to butcher this just to warn people <laughs> I'm going to absolutely butcher the Chinese Bagua Zhang it's very much flowy, uh, less flowy than water which we'll get onto in a second but also uh, you know uh, lots of whipping around the body and Bagua Zhang um, as an art involves a lot of moving in a circular kind of direction around your opponent mm -hmm. and evasive footwork um, combined with, you know, when when there are strikes involved, they tend to be quite fast, and you tend to uh, try to dip out after you've struck as well. Yeah. Um, the fa the most famous uh, kind of iconography of Bagua Zhang that people might be aware of is the Bagua Circle, which is essentially a big uh, yin yang on the on the ground with the kind of eight kind of glyphs around it. 
just like uh, water bending, which I'm going to talk about now, um, air bending and also bagua jung is our internal martial arts. Uh, and if you're not sure what that means, internal martial arts are martial arts that are based more about your connection with your own body and relaxation and connection with oneself and nature around you, as opposed to external martial arts, which are more about uh, offensive striking and affecting your opponent. And, you know, once we've gone through these elements, I think it's worth having a bit of a discussion about the connection between external and internal martial arts, but without wanting to turn this into a martial arts podcast. <laughs> yeah, so uh, waterbending is another, uh, based on another internal art and also features a lot of uh, flowing circular movements. Uh, it's not it's not a defensive form of bending in the show. It can be used to offense, most notably with ice attacks and the whipping effect of strings of water, um, but takes a lot of its inspiration from Tai Chi. And I think it's probably... To someone who maybe hasn't either studied or watched a lot of martial arts, probably the most recognisable in terms mm-hmm. of the movements of the body. You see, I mean, everyone's seen people practicing Tai Chi in the park, and it, it encompasses a lot of those like gathering motions of like for pulling water out of things like rivers and lakes and streams. You see that a lot in the show. And, and there's a lot of kind of shifting weight between your feet mm-hmm. uh, and and that kind of tidal almost movement. Yeah. And actually, um, Tai Chi was well. Not the first martial art I ever studied, but um, one of the early ones I did, and it was—it's always been interesting seeing that represented as a kind of magical fighting force. Yeah. Now moving on to earth bending. Um, so in contrast to air, which is its kind of natural opposite on the kind of wheel of elements, earth bending is the complete opposite. It is. Uh, very much an external style. It's ver- it's much about having a strong, grounded stance, and it's uh, based on Honga. Um, although the style that Toff uh, invents on her own is based on Southern Mantis uh, Chuga, but most of the air bending, uh, so most of the earth bending is Honga, and it's all about being resolute in the face of uh, threat and meeting stuff head on and actually this is something that ang really has a hard time learning because it runs totally counter to his entire philosophy and how he was raised of evasion and misdirection uh, firebending firebending is the most aggressive of the four um, and it's another external art it's based on northern shaolin kung fu um so you know for those that care, the northern uh, Shaolin Kung Fu tends to be more explosive and more acrobatic than the, the southern styles. Um, and it's a lot about um, powering it from your... Well, in, in the in the last airbender, firebending is f- powered by breath and by emotion, um, which is what generates that flame and power. So those are the four principal uh, areas of bending. Um, there are a couple of specialisms. So, for example, in firebending, uh, one of the specialisms that people can do is lightning bending, uh, which is thought of as more about, instead of using your breath to generate this, or an emotions to generate this fire, you are feeling and separating and letting flow the energies of the universe to let them th- flow through your body and to generate that electrical uh, charge. I mean, that's as 
that's about as scientific as it as it gets in the in the show. I'm just going just quickly because I wanted to look up because um, lightning bending is also a different um, martial art. It's inspired by by a different one from. Um... Mm, because I definitely remember that um, the way that they depict, uh, for example, the the redirection of lightning is by tracing along the meridians mm. down the arms across down into the dantian in your stomach then back up along the other meridian in your so arm so it's apparently based on uh baji Chua, baji chen or baji quan that's the cue that i always mess up when chuan yeah so baji chuan is the the inspiration for lightning bending which is a lot of those like you're saying of directing energy through your arms and out in with very solid uh, straight, direct, uh, direct arms, yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, this this podcast could be a whole hour of King and I talking about martial arts. But <laughs> we got one, one, one last little bit of martial arts talk, <laughs> um, and that's blood bending. So this is a specialism of water bending that you see, um, and uh, it's based on bending the water in living organisms, and that can extract the water from them to use in traditional water bending. Um, obviously hurting or killing them in the process yeah. or it can be to control other people's bodies and the the movements in the in the show that this is based on um, is a set of techniques not necessarily its own art but a set of techniques called chinna which are basically joint and limb locking and manipulation techniques to limit your opponent's ability to fight so we've covered ah, we've skimmed like we've, we've, <laughs> we've really avoided getting too deep into the martial arts side of yeah. things but um, Alex, you did make a, a really interesting point um, in the notes that it's interesting that despite having a quite broad cultural inspiration for the civilizations that we'll go into in a bit, all of these martial arts are Chinese martial arts. Mm. I think it's... Uh, thinking about it, there's probably the idea of also the fact that these, these arts, for the, I guess, the person who's not very familiar with martial arts, they're quite niche. Apart from Tai Chi, mm-hmm. really, you would people would know maybe the Hong Gaf, and they would see it in films like um, Kung Fu Hustle has has that it has it, in it and so does Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. But I've, to the I'm trying to not say the general reader, but like the, the, the casual <laughs> observer, you know, that maybe they they do look fairly similar in some ways. It's interesting that they didn't incorporate maybe maybe martial arts like karate or taekwondo or uh, sulat or. Muay Thai were just too familiar to to read to look mm-hmm. to watchers' eyes and to, to might take them out of the fact that it's like and also these martial arts, those martial arts are very 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 much about striking as well. Yes, uh, and I I think that the the striking element as opposed to a grappling art like judo or or wrestling or, mm. or things like that um, makes it more kind of more magicy, more spell casting-y, more mm. visually appealing, and also. Like you said, you know, things like, you know, especially stuff like Bagua. You know, Bagua Zhang looks very, to a Western audience, quite alien because it's, you know, the stances and the movements are are uh, very different from, from what we might be used to from like Western boxing and stuff. Mm. There is a point to be made that, and we will make it in another episode, that uh, uh, the sequel to Avatar, which we will talk about, uh, does in, does incorporate more Western styles of fighting into the ways uh, to do things. I think, for example, like firebending. And it's interesting how that relates to how that set of stories uh, looks at culture as well. But what I really love about 
the ways that they've set up these aesthetics for these bending arts is that they are distinct from each other. Um, you know, the ways that the characters move, and it really fits with the ethoses and the cultures of these fictional societies. And it comes out beautifully in the animation as well. I think there's something which, which one thing to talk about is how well animated the show is. Mm -hmm. um, at the start, it's a bit rough around the edges, but when they obviously get the budget, um, <laughs> the, the movements of the characters and the way that they... Not just the way they fight. I mean, the animation in general, but the fighting is exceptional. The way it's, it's and the it's cinematography staged. of yeah. it, yeah, it's really, really good. You can tell it's very heavily inspired by you know some of that excellent, excellent uh, East Asian uh, kind of martial arts cinematography. Mm. And on that note, uh, one of the big things that I think most people, when they watch Avatar, and it's a it's a joke within the anime community. That if someone says, "Oh, my favorite anime is Avatar: The Last Airbender," it was like, "It's not an anime." <laughs> oh! But uh, it is heavily, heavily, heavily inspired by by Eastern animation and Japanese animation mm -hmm. in particular. Um, and in fact, the both the creators were inspired by uh, someone we've covered on the podcast before, our good friend uh, Miyazaki. In fact, a quote from uh, Michael DiMartino, one of the co-creators, says that the uh, the best anime balances great action sequences with humour and emotion, something we try to do with Avatar. We love all the films of Hayao Miyazaki, especially Spirited Away and Princess Mononoke. Both movies deal with spirituality and the environment in, a, in an entertaining way. Also, there's a lot of great animation. And in fact, uh, one of the other co-creators, uh, Brian Konietzko, has commented that some of his favourite fight scenes are from uh, Shinichiro Watanabe animes, specifically uh, the fight between Cowboy Bebop's Spike Spiegel and a drug smuggler in the episode Asteroid Blues. Oh, that's a great episode. As well as the duel between Mugen and Sara in Samurai Champloo. Both things that uh, definitely we will have to do episodes on. <laughs> love, mm -hmm. love Watanabe anime. Also, the Avatar director, Giancarlo Volpi, said at a 2007 Q&A with uh, fans that the staff of the show were all ordered to buy FLCL, or Fooly Cooly as it's also known, uh, and watch every single episode of it. That is another anime, in case you're wondering. And I think it's important to acknowledge here that this is a show made by two white guys. Mm -hmm. um, two anime nerds, it sounds like. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that introduces an element of, um, you know, potential for appropriativeness. Um, and especially when you're basing these fictional societies on real-world cultures. Um, but we're going to go into that in a little bit uh, once we've passed through a couple of the other inspirations of this. Yeah, so we've, we've already mentioned uh, uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon uh, as something you can see parallels. And in fact, I think throughout the show, there are numerous homages and scenes that are designed to look like scenes from Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. And um, the creators said the Asian cinema is, was obviously a big inspiration for them, uh, especially when it comes to action comedy. Um, Shaolin Soccer is apparently one of their favourite movies because it has, uh, and I quote, tons of fantastic action and lots of funny moments. Some of the effects provided inspiration for how bending moves might look on the show. So, when it comes to Avatar's representation and uh, inspiration from East Asian, South Asian and other indigenous cultures, nowhere is that more exemplified than in the representation of the different nations. Uh, and of course, boiling down all of this stuff into four distinct nations means that there's a little bit of a, a, a coagulation and a little bit of uh, 
cross-referencing here and there. But Kinko and I are going to go through the inspirations for each of the four nations and talk about uh, what that says. So first up, we'll do uh, the water tribes. The water tribes are based largely on real-world Arctic cultures, like the Inuit, Serenike, Yupik, as well as Siberian cultures like the Yakuts, Buryats, uh, Tungut. There are elements drawn from other indigenous cultures, like um, Australian Aboriginal and, and Polynesian cultures. For example, um, Sokka uses a boomerang as one of his main weapons, yeah. and the water tribe boats and ships uh, quite strongly resemble Polynesian catamarans and outrigger canoes and stuff. But the buildings, um, the large ones at the Northern Water Tribe, are externally looking quite kind of early Chinese-esque. Um, but especially the ones at the Southern Water Tribe, um, there's some kind of igloo construction, but there's also um, some that resemble kind of Mongolian yurts or gurs, those kind of round hide tents. Also, interestingly, the Water Tribe members tend to have darker skin than most other people um, in the world of Avatar. Um, except in the terrible live-action remake by M. Night Shyamalan, which we will mention once and once only because there is no remake in Barsing Se. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the Water Tribe is interesting because um, you would imagine, this is me extrapolating, that they were the first nation that the creators fleshed out being that when the show was originally thought of, they were watching a show about the South Pole and explorers of the South Pole, and they thought about what would it be like if people lived there, uh, which is interesting because it's probably the nation that has the most mixed uh, cultural references. I mean, it, when we said like aspects of Aboriginal culture, there's the boomerang, but there's also a lot of feather motif um, of feathers being hung from clothes. Which, yeah, feathers and furs. Yeah, and I think that even things like dream catchers and things like that are mm -hmm. quite are quite present. So with that, although the water tribe, is, water tribes rather, are mixtures of lots of different cultures, when you come to the Earth Kingdom, it's very much the opposite of that because the Earth Kingdom is probably the most solidly referential to medieval Chinese history. The clothing of Earth Kingdom citizens, although sometimes has Korean and Japanese influences, is very much Chinese. Uh, ba Sing Se, the government that runs the city when we see when we visit there, is a police state which is very similar to the Jinyi Wei of the, the Ming Dynasty. Uh, total control over the populace by a uh, secret force of police. Again with fashion, the people of the Earth Kingdom wear top knots, which was a mandatory hairstyle for men of all social classes in pre-Qing era China. Uh, speaking of the city of Ba Sing Se, it's based on the historic design of Beijing, which was originally organised into concentric rings. Also, the people who live in Barsing say their clothing is inspired by Qing Dynasty dress. And the outer wall of the city, the scale and design of it, is very reminiscent of the Great Wall of China. Interestingly, uh, talking about the uh, the police state, the Dai Li, who are the secret police of uh, Barsing Se and the Earth Kingdom, have their, their secret base under Lake Laogai. And in China, uh, Laogai is a phrase to refer to the system of prison camps uh, begun by Mao Zedong. Now, this is something I did not know. Um, and that is... It's a bold reference. Yeah, for a kid show. Yeah, especially because, like... You know, uh, it's interesting that you can make a very upfront reference to um, Chinese communist prison camps. But if you were to say, um, Oh, we're, you know, uh, we're going to 
you know, Lake Guantanamo yeah. or like Lake Belson. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that might ring slightly differently. Yeah. Um, there is, uh, there's also a, a, an undercurrent of philosophy running through the Earth Kingdom, which is mostly uh, Taoist, uh, especially exemplified by um, Amashu and King Bumi. Um, there we, where King Bumi's attitude of, is sort of doing nothing, uh, a resemblance to the Taoist ideal of Wu Wei. But um, Kinko, it's not just about sitting there and doing nothing, literally, though, is it? No, the the idea is more that rather than separating and isolating yourself, this is one of patience and observation and connection and waiting for an appropriate moment and situation to act in the most effective way. Um, and actually, Bumi, the, the King Bumi exemplifies this um, in his escape from Fire Nation captivity later in the series, where he waits and waits. And even even when it's shown that he was able to escape, he waits and waits and waits till there's an eclipse, at which point he not just escapes from captivity, but actually liberates the entire city from Fire Nation control. Speaking of the Fire Nation... <laughs> The Fire Nation is an interesting one in terms of cultural inspiration um, because originally they were planned to draw quite directly on Japanese culture and aesthetic, which would have been a pretty spicy move given some of the other um, aspects of the of the Fire Nation's culture and history and relationship with the world. Mm. They are a volcanic island nation off the coast of a much larger terrestrial kingdom. No modern comparisons there. They are uh, imperialistic, kind of xenophobic. They have a thing for honor and the sun. Um, and they wage imperial expansionist wars to, quote, share our prosperity with the world, mm. which is a, um, a direct mirror of the East Asian co-prosperity sphere, which Alex mentioned in the Tao episode of our 40k arc, mm. um, which was basically a euphemistic name for imperial expansion by the Japanese Empire. So this is, if you know much about the history and politics of uh, Japan and East Asia over the last couple of hundred years, um, there's a lot of flags there. Um, and these are incredibly sensitive topics, especially in Japan and China. Um, there's a lot of bad blood and unresolved um, unresolved conflict there. You know, there's a, for example, uh, the rape of Nanjing is a very famous war crime that has never really been reconciled. Mm. And you mentioned something when we were chatting about uh, there's a the Shinto temple. Yeah, there's a in Japan. Uh, there's a Shinto temple that is controversial uh, because it is a, a war grave site or a way of honouring those who who died during the Second World War. But it includes the names of known and proven war criminals, and it's it's a place of contention in Japanese politics whether a Japanese um, president or prime minister prays at the shrine or doesn't pray at the shrine. It's controversial whether they do or they don't, either with, with both foreign and domestically. It's it's just a quagmire because if they do go, they get criticism from outside, from China, from Korea, from Vietnam, from the Philippines, places like that. If they don't go, they get criticism from uh, nationalist segments within the Japanese government. And we the we've spoken about the the tendencies of Japan and nationalism in the Tao episode because of the parallels there. But yes, 
there's a lot of stuff in, in the Fire Nation where it's like, okay, you've you've swung very hard one way, and you've pulled it back slightly by trying to d- dot in as much wider Asian influence as possible. I mean, it's even ruled by a Fire Lord, which has rings of like the Shogun or the Emperor. Yes, yeah, it's a it's a it's a very kind of top down uh, monarchy, but. In the end, they did, like you say, they steered away from a direct Japanese inspiration and they introduced a lot more uh, Chinese and Korean aesthetic influences. Um, and it's you know, it's hard to know exactly how that decision was made, but it could be that it was um, a contribution of the cultural consultants that, um, that the creators hired and brought on board for this show, Edwin Zane and Su Ling Li, um, who were two people of East Asian ancestry who you know helping a couple of white guys make a show that's inspired by asia um and while it's like i said hard to know exactly what decisions were made and how you you've got to at least uh, have some belief that their presence on the project helped make it the show that it is in that it's it's representation and inspiration from east asian cultures is a little bit more meaningful and and sensitive uh, than it could have been um, but that part aside, um, in contrast with the the Taoism that Alex was talking about from the Earth Kingdom, there's a very strong Confucianist bent to the Fire Nation. And uh, for those that might not be familiar, Confucianism is a philosophical system that is based quite a lot on duty and social order and structure. And a big concept of that is Shao Shuen, and I'm really sorry if I'm mispronouncing that, um, but it's essentially filial piety so your duty and allegiance to your parents and your ancestors and this is a really key theme in Zuko's whole arc um, and his his imprisonment in his own sense of you know loyalty to his abusive father and the eventual transference of that towards his much more paternalistic uncle yeah and uh, that even goes to the point where uh, Zuko and Iroh uh, cut off their top knots uh, when they become uh, when they go rogue. Yeah, uh, it's a symbol symbolizes their separation from the family and the nation, which was actually a practice that occurred quite a lot in ancient East Asian culture. And um, I knew I'd be able, I knew I'd be able to fit it in somewhere. Um, when it comes to the this whole uh, Japanese coding, it's interesting that um, when you read official uh, materials about Avatar, it's it says that. Uh, the Fire Nation's topography, volcanic islands and stuff, was inspired by Iceland. And it's interesting to note that there is a uh, land in the setting um, where the Kyoshi warriors come from, which is extremely Japanese coded. They wear a Japanese armor. They wear like the uh, Japanese no makeup. Uh, they wear. They have katanas, um, and have ex- very explicit Japanese architecture. So it's interesting that there are those the aspects to it as well. Um, that they did then create a very Japanese-coded place in the setting, uh, explicitly, explicitly so, uh, as opposed to the opposite of explicit, implicitly. <laughs> there we go, got there in the end. But we're not done with all the cultures. We've got one more to go. So the last of these four that we're going to look at is... <clears throat> so the last of the four nations to look at are the Air Nomads. And I would say that these are probably the most one-to-one uh, monophyletic kind of reflections of a real world culture that we see because uh, these guys are Buddhist as fuck um, specifically quite strongly uh, inspired by Tibetan Buddhist aesthetic and tradition 
the air nomads live in monasteries um everyone in their society is some kind of part of this monastic tradition and community um they are kind of sex segregated communities who wear um kind of golden yellow and orange robes um they shave their heads and they have an ethos of non-aggression harmony with the world around them and a strong connection to the spirit world and the flip side of this is that this does lead them to be somewhat isolated um, from other communities and this is not just geographically they live in four mountain temples in the north south east and west but also culturally um, they they don't tend to have a lot of interaction with other civilizations which ultimately makes them a, a, a an easier target for genocide by the fire nation on the subject of which a hundred years before the start of this series they are almost entirely annihilated by the Fire Nation at the start of the war that the series is set in. Um, because it is the next uh, society that the Avatar is due to be reincarnated into. So if the Fire Nation can wipe out the Air Nomads, then it ends the cycle of reincarnation and takes away any obstacle to Fire Nation global domination. Um, this idea of a, a military imperial power trying to take control of or even uh, wipe out this monastic society. I'm getting vague bells of uh, China-Tibet analogies going on here. Yeah, I think so. I think I think uh, that's definitely the case. and Or at least definitely the case they were pulling out the, those comparisons, especially in the fact that, um, you know, the... the the way that the next Dalai Lama is chosen is that when uh, they they seek a child that is become the reincarnation of the Dalai Lama that hasn't this, it's not necessarily you're born the reincarnation you are discovered to be the reincarnation through a series of questions, um, which is similar with the Avatar. No, I think I, as far as I'm aware, maybe some are born the Avatar, but um, they are discovered to be the Avatar via you know anyone could be the Avatar. Mm-hmm. But it's like you have to look for them. Uh, and stopping that cycle of you know um, of finding the next uh, spiritual leader of the society uh, rings true with um, you know this happens across history as well because that's not focused too heavily on Asia because there's been instances of people creating their own pope uh, create the anti-pope because they want to control that 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 aspect of the mix of uh, religion and secularism and it's the same with China China um, was uh, anti antagonistic towards Tibet and even tried to take over the the appointment of the Dalai Lama and spiritual leaders in Buddhism. So, a lot of Asian uh, influence, inspiration, uh, draws drawing drawing ins from across uh, East Asia and South Asia uh, by, and we've said it a few times, a couple of white guys. A couple of white guys. Um, and it's, it's something that, and I don't want to say is a black mark against Avatar, because... It, it, it's a really good show, right? It's really, really good. But it's something that will always accompany discussion of the show is the idea that, um, you know, the, the, this show that a lot of people feel very strongly about was created by two white guys. And in fact, 14 of the 17 main characters are voiced by white people. Although a quick shout out to the, the voice actor for Uncle Iroh. Yeah, Mako. Mako Iwamatsu, um, who was a much beloved Japanese-American actor um, who was the voice of Uncle Iroh for the first two series. 
um, sadly passed away uh, in between series two and series three. Um, but there are a couple of tributes to him in the show. So uh, there's an episode um, in series two called Basting Say Stories, which is dedicated to Uncle Iroh. Oh, well, dedicated to Mako, sorry. Um, and one of the main characters in the sequel series, Legend of Korra, is named Mako in honor of, uh, of, of Mako the actor. Yeah, and... Uh, well, Marco's understudy. Yes, Marco's understudy is a guy called Greg Baldwin, who, as far as I can tell, I don't want to assume, but, <laughs> you know, is, is a white guy, but is his understudy, and I don't know enough about the voice acting world. I mean, he stepped in to take over all of his voice roles, mm-hmm. and is his thing is, I can sound just like him. So, you know, it's I don't know how that works, you know. It, it, they can't have, it would have been a lot of effort to go out and find another Japanese-American person or Chinese-American or Korean-American. Who sounds just who like sounds, Marco. Who sounds just like yeah. him. Um, but yeah, in my research, I, I did, and I know there's, there's an issue with when you say things and uh, uh, they get logged on the internet for everyone to see for all per- per- perpetuity. Uh, but there is a quote from, from one of the co-creators, uh, Brian Kunitz here, who says in, he told the New York Times in 2005, so the show's just come out uh, and... Again, this is out of context. We don't know if this is a joke. It might be a joke. It might not be. But he said, we were really into yoga when we started this show. Which is probably why we wanted to do something that was Asian influenced. <laughs> in, in text, it sounds bad. But when you read it, it, sa- it really does sound like it's sarcastic. I really, really hope that was a joke. Because it might just be me being sarcastic when I read it. But I don't know. When you read it out loud, it does sound like it was you were like, oh, we were really into yoga. So that's yeah. why we did it. But, yeah. but again, this was 2005. Maybe people were dumber then. I don't yeah. Know. And <laughs> there's, there's, there's an interesting aspect about this from um, both a representation and a viewership thing. Because uh, from a, 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 a specifically an Asian American perspective, because uh, in fact, one of the, the author of the Avatar comic book, so not without bias, a guy called Jean Luen Yang, um, said uh, in a quote, um, when it comes down to it, it being Avatar was just a really well-written show. Uh, It was quintessentially Asian-American in the way it blended Eastern and Western cultures in the same way that we, as Asian-Americans, are a blend of East and West. And in general, Asian-Americans have a mixed response about uh, Avatar, but it's mostly positive. And I think, you know, they they sometimes they feel at least the show is a representation in a way. Uh, At least it's something. However... I mean, it is a world based mostly around martial arts. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, a, a popular bugbear for um, for Asian Americans. Is yeah. that, you know, for example, you know, uh, when you look at the uh, Asian uh, actors who play the roles in, for example, uh, Rogue One, mm. um, you see Donnie Yen come on screen and you're like, okay, so these space Asians know space kung fu. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that, that again, uh, sorry, but that, that cuts back to uh, the point we made about bending is that all they're all Chinese martial arts. Yes. That's yeah, fine. which is, uh, yeah, probably... Um, if one of them had been boxing or Greco-Roman wrestling. You know, yeah. Who knows? Or even if they'd been martial arts from you yeah. know, all around uh, Asia. Yeah. But I think it's really important to once again acknowledge the the cultural consultants on this show, um, Edwin Zane and Sulung Lee, because... Um, as you can probably tell from the yoga comment, it probably would have been a different show um, <laughs> had uh, these uh, two white boys been unguided and unassisted in this journey. That said, uh, and I'm not saying that this is the case here, but the hiring of cultural consultants has sometimes been used 
uh, even nowadays as a bit of a bit of a, a fig leaf or a shield against any kind of criticism of, of appropriation. I'm looking at you, critical role. Um, and there are limits to what cultural consultants can do. For example, these two cultural consultants were both of East Asian heritage, which is super relevant to almost all of the cultures that are represented um, here. Obviously, not quite as relevant to the, the waterbending um, inspiration cultures, but um, those seem to be reasonably well handled. Mm -hmm. I do have to do my angry Arab bit, though, because at one point we meet uh, a subset of earthbenders called sandbenders. Now, I have a real bugbear um, about using the prefix sand to mean scary, dirty, dangerous. Um, if you, know, you might not remember, I'm uh, Palestinian um, on my dad's side, and this is a post-9-11 cartoon, um, so it's in the era when... Very fresh, in fact. Yeah, when Arabs were... The, the group that was always okay to make the bad guys. Um, but this predates 9-11 as well. If you look at this, the sand people mm. in Star Wars. Yeah. yeah. All sorts of fictional societies that are Bedouin-coded or Arab-coded, or you know, generally Middle Eastern, North African-coded, it's always they wear, like, dirty rags, they have bad teeth, they speak, you know, in a way that you can't understand, they come out of nowhere, they nick your stuff, they're a danger. Um... And I hate it. And they didn't need to be there. Yeah, they didn't need to be these, you know, like weird uh, kind of stereotype uh, orientalist threats. Even from a, even from like a even from a world perspective, it's like you know, newsflash, guys. Sand is rocks. Sand, right? is, sand is earth. Right. They could just be a, another, you know, Earth Kingdom group. Yeah. Um, and th there's also. Um, Another subset of, of waterbender, which is the swamp benders. Um, and they are coded as kind of uh, so, like Florida, Louisiana yeah, kind of deep south, deep south bayou folks. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And they power their uh, boats by, you know, they work like airboats in Florida and yeah, they yeah. can control vines and stuff. And they're coded for kind of comic relief mm. and you know i don't know whether i'm uh more sensitive to the sand stuff because i think i think it, it's its own issue right because there's 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 elements of classism there yeah uh and but then also playing it for comic relief is its own thing as well yeah so there's a classist punching down for comic relief on the swamp benders yeah and then there's the uh, <laughs> scary Arabs yeah. um, of the sandbenders. The wavy heat haze, the woman staring at the camera. Yeah. Kind of like, um, let's run through a market full of beads. Right. Even to the extent, like, you know, one of the one of the biggest real world um, incarnations of sand prefix is sand N-bomb, um, which, uh, yeah. you know, for a long time, yeah. especially since 9-11, has been used... Uh, as a as a slur for Middle Eastern North African people, um, and also for South Asian people because racists are dumb. Yeah. Sorry, angry Arab rant over. <laughs> <laughs> I st I do still love this show. Yeah. Like I don't. You know, we we lay into every story and uh, and and intellectual property that we look at on this show because we love them and we want to pick them apart and see how they work. Yeah. And 
you know, you can't hate on something unless you love it. Yeah, and I think it, it bears out thinking, we do this a lot at the, at the end of every episode. We, we do this a lot at the end of most episodes, but that's because it's worth repeating over and over again. It's the, the point, we started this podcast because we, this isn't, this isn't fun at parties. <laughs> People don't like this. If you sit down with someone and you just ha- you bang on about the political socio theory of street sharks, people people will stop listening to you. So this is why we go into these hor- these these really in depth things. And Avatar is a really really good show. There's mm-hmm. a reason why it's critically acclaimed. It's so good. It, it like the, I said at the top of the show. There's no reason why a kids show should be this good, but it's amazing that it is this good. Um, and all these things that build that 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 come together to make it are good as well as questionable, but mostly good. But sometimes questionable, but mostly good. And there are some really base things about it, like um, you know, the, some of the main themes are like you might have to punch a fascist. Yeah. Um, there's a you know there's an explicit bit where Ang is grappling with his ingrained ethos of non-aggression and non-violence. And trying to come to terms with that versus the fact that he's going to have to stop the Fire Lord somehow. Um, and there's a bit where he says, you know, violence is never the answer. And Zuko says, all right, so what are you going to do when you meet my father? Mm. And Aang doesn't have an answer. Um, and there's, you know, there's, a, there's an episode that basically says direct action is better than charity. Um, which is the Painted Lady episode. Yeah. Um, so they, they come across a Fire Nation town that um, is on the edge of a is, is built in a lake that is being polluted by an, a military factory, um, and they turn up and Katara, because she's the most caring one, you know, initially starts helping them out charitably, but realizes that realizes that that is unsustainable unless you address the underlying injustice and inequality that is causing the suffering, and so they go and fuck up the factory. Yeah, and that is what frees the town from from its situation. So, but let's let's uh, focus down on themes. Um, because there are quite a few, uh, but there are a few major ones. And, and the first, probably, to th- talk about is the idea of balance and harmony, which extends throughout both Avatar and its sequel. And the story is explicitly about balance, because even from the opening, you know, uh, the opening animation, it's explicit that the Avatar is a being whose whose role is to bring balance to the world, um, but that's not the only manifestation of this theme. Uh, we also see balance within people and between characters, and I think it's interesting to note that you know by the end of the series, Ang and his companions draw upon people from every one of the four main civilizations. And so it becomes a drawing together of people, uh, a collectivization of Yeah, action. and if you were someone who's seen the show and you might want to be on the same kind of uh, page as Kinko and I and trying to think about things too deeply, you might say, well, isn't balance just a uh, another way of saying centrism? And interestingly, in Avatar, in Avatar uh, it's, I mean, there, like, there is a, there is a, a big bad that's right there in front of you there is like when you when you're facing something that is just big militaristic imperialistic threat world ending thing it's like it's kind of like the the idea of balance is like well that obviously that's got to go <laughs> you know it's not like 
it, it's not that very much like uh, you know golden sets whatever the golden way that kind of stuff it's very much this is the big bad it's got to go to to make things right again yeah and but they also they encounter other um imbalances and injustices uh across the world when they're on their journey mm. so for example the uh you know the police state of Barsing say yeah or the um the kind of the bitter vengeance of the 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 bloodbending witch mm. um and things like that and these are a lot of these are imbalances that stemmed from the kind of the central threat of the fire lord but some of them are just ones that are out there in the world. Yeah, I mean, there's the isolationism of the water tribes, and <coughs> the, also the uh, on the other side of the Earth Kingdom, the um, the aloofness of Amashi when they meet Bumi in uh, Amashi, as we talked about earlier when we said about his uh, philosophy of Wu Wei. Yeah, uh, and also the the air nomads. Um, this isn't explored a super great deal in the Last Airbender, but it is in Legend of Korra and in um, some of the the, the the background law is that you know the the airbenders in their pursuit of spiritual connection with the spirit world and you know oneness with the natural world as well do kind of isolate themselves from a lot of the other cultures um which ultimately makes them uh in, in, i guess an easier target for the genocide by the fire nation yeah and a big part of this balance and harmony thing is about power explicitly power because in a world where certain individuals have the power this immense magical power to control elements and the you have the imbalances of power between these nations it's about you know the the main characters learning about their own power and reckoning with that and there are moments where Actually, they all of them do abuse their power and learn from that, um, as well as the main threat being an all you know a, a powerful fire lord who is about to be empowered further by uh, a comet that will that will make him unstoppable. So, as well as balance and harmony, there are what I've grouped under uh, notes in air quotes the idea of kid show themes. Um, and that's not the, a derogatory term. It's the mark of a good show aimed at children and, and teens or preteens is when it delivers these sorts of themes in a in a well-rounded and impactful way that come under you know friendship and responsibility, uh, family and not just familial relations but found family, the bonds you can form with your friends or even strangers sometimes. But probably of those kids show themes, the most compelling is that of self-discovery. Very important when you're making a show that is ostensibly aimed at children who, you know, over the next few years, even if they're they're watching the show at age 8 or age 10 or age 12, are going to go through profound changes. Um, And it's interesting because this actually ties in, in a way, to something we talked about in the last episode, is the idea of the hero's journey. Because Kniecko and DiMartino, in their own personal blogs, have cited... Joseph Campbell, who is the man who created the idea of monomyths and the hero's journey, if you want to hear a little bit more about that, listen to the last episode. Um, They cite the hero's journey, this idea of a a hero going from nothing to becoming someone to then influencing the world once gaining powers through a series of mystical events. Think Star Wars, that's that's the big one. They cite that as a major influence in how they created the storyline and the characters for the show. Uh, And I think, weirdly, 
a little bit unlike Cast in the Sky, there is an application here in some ways. Yeah, um, although you know the idea of the hero's journey as maybe you know the monomyth or a monomyth, I think maybe is a little um, a little reductive and a little maybe oversimplificative. <laughs> um, but there are there are several heroes' journeys within it. Um, mm. Obviously, you have the central you know title character of Ang the Avatar, the Last Airbender. Who, you know, is thrust into a position of uh, responsibility, and at times rejects the call, and then embraces it and goes through trials and tribulations, grows and then returns to uh, take on their responsibility and affect the world uh, in positive ways through the abilities and perspective that they gained through that growth and that journey, which is. You know, it does fit with that tool of the of the hero's journey. But one of the wonderful things about this show is that it's not just about Ang, the Avatar, the Last Airbender. Uh, it the what you might think of as the the supporting cast is actually you know a handful of main characters as well. You have you have uh, Katara and Sokka, um, the Water Tribe members who originally find Ang, then. Toph, the Earthbender, and then eventually Zuko as well, and they all go through their own journeys of self-discovery and growth. Um, for example, Katara. Katara starts off being kind of um, a surrogate mother figure. You know, uh, her and Sokka's own mother was um, was uh, either killed or, or imprisoned by the Fire Nation. Um, and their father was off at war, and so, in their much reduced community that had been, you know, depleted by Fire Nation raids, Katara was this nurturing mother figure. But over the course of the the journey in the story, she discovers a power and um, a more kind of assertive way to to embody herself and to relate to the world. And you know, her brother Sokka is almost a a kind of a foil to that. Yeah, so Sokka, who is in the group the only one who doesn't have these magical, mystical powers, and it's a source of contention for him because, well, at first, in the first few bits of the show, he blames Benders for the whole problems with the world, that uh, their arrogance and the fact that they're, you know, hoity-toity, they're bringing out all the problems. Uh, but as he progresses, he realizes that that um, that those feelings come from a place of jealousy. That he's jealous that his sister is the only um, waterbender in his tribe, and also, you know, very powerful um, waterbender in her own right. Whereas he is just, in his own eyes, some guy. Uh, but he goes through his journey from a person who wants to be a, a warrior like his father, uh, but is fairly inept at it. But then trains over time. He meets uh, uh, rather uh, nice, rather what's the word? Neatly, he's trained by a group of warrior women uh, who he disdains to start with, uh, f and thinks that it's silly that women should be uh, should be uh, martial artists. Yeah, he calls their training you know dance practice. Yeah, until uh, they whoop his ass. Until they whoop his ass, and then he is uh, made to uh, dress up in makeup and their actual like uh, what would you call it? Not uniform. 
but they're uh, garb. They're garb, uh, and taking down a few pegs. But he learns from it, uh, and then later on he struggles with the idea of him being just in air quotes the comic relief. And this is an entire kind of episode theme that. Uh, Sokka, at the start of that episode, is in a deep pit of depression because he feels totally inadequate alongside his companions who are these powerful benders, and one of them is the literal avatar. Mm. Um, And over the course of that episode, that kind of of self-loathing brings him to a place of humility, and through that humility, he actually manages to gain the trust and tutelage of a swordsman master um, who teaches him not just combat techniques but also uh, philosophical and self-understanding approaches that lead to his transformation into a really potent warrior. Yeah, and it's also interesting that in that episode um, the swordsmaster doesn't say that uh, he was interested in soccer for his ability to be a warrior but he likes soccer for his uh, alternative and out-of-the-box thinking when it comes to solving problems. Uh, and that that is his greatest strength, not his ability to swing a sword, but the fact that he has this ability to come up with plans and mm-hmm. uh, and alternative routes around. And something uh, that's interesting in that episode is the whole thing of Sokka thinking, I'm just the comic relief, but we're showing the rest of the, the party having a pretty horrible time without him there to, to help lighten the load of this, you know, this globe, world-spanning and incredibly important quest that is handed down to who, who, characters who are effectively young children. Yeah. Child soldiers. <laughs> but the good guys. Yeah, but the good guys. <laughs> yeah. And this uh, transformation into his kind of warrior personality is symbolised by you know the culmination of that episode. He forges, with the help of this Master Swordsman, he forges his own brand new sword out of iron from a meteorite that the party have found and that Toph has helped to metal bend uh, into a into a form that he can use. Mm. And Toph, of course, undergoes her, her own transformation. She goes from being... Um, when they find her, she is a blind child of a very rich family who pamper her and keep her isolated from everything. Unbeknownst to them, uh, who think that she is a weak, delicate flower, she is actually an incredibly potent earthbender who, uh, instead of being taught by another earthbending master, learned by getting lost in a cave and communing with the badger moles, who are these huge, giant, hybrid animals that um, canonically were the mystical beasts that created the first uh, earthbending. And she is very independent, or to a fault. She's very standoffish and resists any form of help or cooperation or camaraderie. And she only goes with the Avatar um, and, and friends to escape the bonds of her family. But over the course of the journey, she confronts some of that aspect of herself and she discovers the importance of connection and being part of something greater than yourself. And there's even, uh, for those who watch the show and like to put ships together, a slight, a slight hint of romantic connection between her and Sokka as well towards the end. Ooh, but yeah. only only from her side, not from Sokka's. Yes, yeah, slightly hinted. Whereas she spends a lot of the lot of the uh, the show deriding and, and mocking him. 
but then we make it's hinted at later that that comes from a position of of affection and ang you know the 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 titular protagonist ang as a child is trained in airbending um and then at a very young age is told that he is the avatar younger than uh, avatars are normally notified of that because of the threat of the fire nation invasion this responsibility makes him feel like his entire childhood was taken away and so he flees from that responsibility he goes hides and ends up getting frozen in an iceberg for a hundred years so when he wakes up from that that responsibility is still there but even greater and he resists that but through being the avatar he has to learn and master all four elements and he has to learn the approaches and the philosophies behind them and through that he learns about his responsibility and uh, how to tackle things head-on as well as um, through circuitous or 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 uh, less aggressive means and comes to terms with the fact that he might have to do physical violence to maintain peace um, and I think that is a big part of his growth. Yeah, I think there's something in Aang that is... Because there's an easy way of, of taking this as a sort of a loss of innocence thing. Because Aang starts off as extremely childlike um, and it loves playing around. At the start of the show, he very much just wants to have fun with his flying bison and his new friends. Uh, and even when he's revealed to be the Avatar, he takes on the responsibility of learning the other elements as sort of a game. Uh, it's fun. Uh, it's a, mm -hmm. you know, a fun thing to do. And it's only through continued, continued interaction and friction with the Fire Nation that he realises that he has to step up and be this, this world-saving phenomena. However, and I think this is, something that, this is something that goes through all the other characters, he doesn't just become some sort of dead-eyed uh, warrior child. Even even during the moments of high peril, he's still having fun and he's still enjoying himself. He's still taking time to to have fun. And there are, but I think there are bits in the later seasons where there is that friction with Aang. It's like you know, I can't have fun anymore um, because of this this huge responsibility I'm shouldering. And it is something that all the characters go through. There's even an explicit line um, where Katara says to Aang, "You're not the little boy we found in that iceberg anymore." Yeah. So it's really codified there. And everyone's favourite edgy boy, yeah. Zuko. Everyone's listening thinking, but what about my boy? <laughs> Zuko, I think, probably has the, to me, one of the, the kind of the most compelling and uh, interesting journeys of self-discovery. Because at the start of the story, he is an exiled prince in complete disgrace. He uh, challenged his father in a, you know, in, in, a, in a debate in court. Um, and as punishment, his father uh, made him fight a duel against him, a physical fight. And his father whoops his ass and gives him a massive disfiguring burn scar across one side of his face mm. and exiles him. And so Zuko, when we meet him at the start of the story, is determined to track down the Avatar um, because he believes that that is the one thing that will make his father restore respect and honour to Zuko. Mm. Um, and Uncle Iroh has gone with um, and Uncle Iroh has gone with Zuko because he is concerned for his nephew. He wants to keep him physically safe, but also senses that he's on a dark path and wants to help guide him towards something more constructive. Yeah. And Zuko's journey through you know the the tribulations that he goes through 
makes him realize as alongside the guidance of Iroh that actually he can't he can't have his honor restored from from the outside he needs to you know be at peace with himself and be at peace with the world before he can restore his own honor um, and there's even a quote um, near the end of the series where Iroh is saying that you know the the quest is going to require someone of impeccable honor and Zuko says unquestionable honor but I've made so many mistakes and Iroh says yes you've struggled you've suffered but you've always followed your own path you've restored your own honor and it's important that Zuko's journey to self-realization is not linear he goes through lots of ups and downs lots of bumps and and hiccups on the road hmm. there are lots of points where he achieves a small amount or, or a significant amount of growth and then slips backwards into old habits and you know is still kind of struggling to escape those bonds that he's trapped himself in yeah i think it's uh there in the later seasons it's an interesting relationship he has with katara uh where she becomes probably a focal point as well as iroh of his redemption mm-hmm. but she becomes frustrated with the fact that he keeps sliding back into this old form and it's a it's an interesting dichotomy between the two ways these two characters have both grown up uh in terms of their home life you know in that katara comes from a very caring and loving place and can't understand how Zuko can't get there, and they don't. Then they have that point of contention with them. And it's interesting that you mentioned Uncle Iroh as well, because he is also someone who the viewers haven't seen, but has gone through his own journey to get to where he is. And and um, we've talked about it previously how Iroh is probably one of the best uh, fictional personifications of positive masculinity. Yeah, um, because he is a you know. And literally avuncular. He's a, he's an uncle figure, and when we meet him at the, at the start of the story, the image we get of him is a you know aging, slightly rotund, kind of bumbling, good-natured bumbling guy who likes tea and food and a board game called Pai Show. Um, but over the course of the story, we learn mostly through other people's uh, recollections of Iroh that he used to be an incredible warrior and great general um, who led Fire Nation armies, almost conquered the Earth Kingdom capital of Ba Sing Se, was known as the Great Dragon of the West because he reportedly slew the last remaining dragon, although this turns out to be a lie that he told to actually preserve the life of the last dragon. And so he's gone on this journey from being this trad mask warrior general fire-breathing figure to rejecting that and distancing that, which is precipitated by the the death of his son. Um, His son dies during the same siege that was to be Iroh's greatest victory. And he realizes that all of this destruction and domination has not given him anything. And it's actually taken away the thing that was most important to him. And so then, you know, the, the Iroh that we meet at the beginning of this series is one that is at peace with himself and is at peace with the world, even though he still grieves his son, he re- realizes that destruction and domination is not the way to solve that. It's not the way to achieve meaningful joy. Yeah, and he takes on he his role through the show is in trying to show that to Zuko, and they have multiple 
um, heated discussions. And at one point, <laughs> literally, yeah. And at one point, uh, a, a genuine shouting match, uh, which leaves Zuko to cast away Iroh, and then naturally realised towards a, a time later that he was not necessarily wrong in doing so, but that his ideas were uh, flawed. There is also a bit later in the series where um, Iroh gets uh, prison ripped. Yes, um, yes, I was <laughs> thinking about the prison ripped bit actually, where he goes from being this, uh, you know, this tub- tubby old man to being like Venice Beach muscle yeah. granddad. <laughs> he's, just, he's, just, he's just doing sit-ups on the bars, doing press-ups all day with his, fing- his fingertips, being feet on nothing but rice. <laughs> getting, it's like the NWA, still getting swollen off bread and water. <laughs> yeah, that's what he's doing. Uh, yeah. Um, so I think that the, the messaging of the overall messaging of, of self-discovery, um, harmony, but at the same time, understanding that, you know, you can't just live in this, let's all hold hands world and you will need to fight for, you know, justice and fight to protect the weak from the powerful is really important. Yeah, and a fantastic message for a kid's show as well. Yeah, and it's not just that classic narrative of, um, you know, there is a status quo, something has disturbed the status quo, and then the good guys need to get it back to how it was, which mm. is, you know, centrist cartoon. Um, <laughs> this is, you got to punch a fascist. Yeah, and a lot of these things that are sown in Avatar The Last Airbender are nurtured and grown with the sequel. And explored in really interesting new ways. The, I, one of the beautiful things about this show and the sequel, Korra, is that even even within this show, it grows up a little bit and, and yeah. starts off very much as a kid's show. Yeah, yeah. And then it matures, and then it takes a massive leap in maturity uh, when it goes to Legend of Korra, because... This show grew up with its audience, which I think is really beautiful. And it's something we'll be exploring with the next episode, because you heard it. Legend of Korra. Legend of Korra is up next, but that's been it for Avatar The Last Endbender. Again, we, Kink and I both really, really love this show. It's really good. You should watch it. Our summary was nowhere near good enough. Nope. 60 episodes. Um, what? Watch it. It's on, it's on your favorite streaming sites. Binge it. Love it. Love you. Bye.